Good morning. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Joel. The book of Joel, that's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And you might think that's a strange book for us to open up to this morning, as we have pretty much uh, exclusively been spending our time in Mark and in Matthew looking at the parables and at the life of Jesus. But we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at this Old Testament book of Joel, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. As you're getting your Bibles out and finding there, and I realize Joel's a little tiny book and a great big section of the Bible, and one that we probably don't spend a whole lot of time reading in. So maybe it'll take us a minute to thumb through our, our Bibles and find that. Uh, while you're turning there, first I want to say how thankful I am for all of those of you who are visiting with us. That is a great encouragement to me, and um, hope that I can get an opportunity to get to know each and every one of you just a little bit better. Uh, after services are over and, and, and meet you. I also want to say that I had a very busy week. Um, you all heard on Wednesday night how, how um, much I had lost my voice uh, on a recent trip to Kings Island, and I had really just let the inner child come out and scream to my heart's delight until I couldn't talk anymore. Um, but on top of that, on, I, I told some of you Wednesday that I had a class I had to teach on Thursday, and another class I had to teach on Friday, and it really had kind of filled up my, my week for what I was going to be preparing for. And I thought, well, what, how am I going to, what am I going to prepare for Sunday morning? What are we going to study this morning? And I thought, you know, maybe the best thing would be to consolidate some of the lessons that I have prepared for this week uh, into our Sunday morning lesson. Now, on Friday, I was asked to preach on James 5, and since Phil Arnold just preached that here not too long ago, I figured maybe we wouldn't rehash that. But Thursday, I was asked to lead a class on the book of Joel. And as I studied for that, I realized Joel is a very, a very powerful book. Joel is a book that we need to study more today. Oftentimes, we tend to put these off and put these books aside because they are the minor prophets. They're not, a, they're not the big shot prophets like Ezekiel and, and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Those are the big guys. The minor prophets were called minor prophets simply because of the number of pages it took to record them. The only reason they were ever called the minor prophets, uh, originally in Jewish texts, there wasn't a division of minor and major, it was just the prophets, and they were all lumped together. But as we began to break them up, uh, people began to notice, wow, these books over here are not as long as these other ones. These are really big books, Ezekiel and Isaiah, those are huge books. And so they began to make this division of the major and the minor, Joel being one of the minor. It's a small book, you can read through this book. In just a little while. It doesn't take very long at all. And so we're not going to actually read through the book. We're going to do a very, an overview of what the message of Joel is. And I encourage you with that overview to spend a little bit of time maybe this week reading through it yourself and seeing that message for yourself. Because it truly is a very awesome and, and beautiful book that is calling to us to understand it. To begin, I want to talk just for a minute about the author, Joel. Joel is someone we really don't know much about. We haven't uh, seen, you know, he's not shown up in Bible, in the Scripture anywhere else. We know his father uh, is listed here early on in the very first verse, the son of Pethuel. But we don't know anything about Pethuel. So really, Joel is a man of anonymity. We don't know who he is. But we know what his name means. The Hebrew name Joel is the word Yahweh. Yahweh means Yahweh is God, and that's going to tell us what the purpose of Joel's, Joel's book is. To come to a people that needed to be reminded, who is God? 
Not your family, not these other idols, not your riches, not your nation. Yahweh is God. It's interesting that um, it's the exact opposite of the name Elijah. Elijah is God is Yahweh. Joel is the exact opposite of that. Yahweh is God. And again, he is a great anonymity. Even the time of the writing is up for great debate. There's three um, events that are typically are given as the dates. Uh, I put these on the board. The days of Joash. If you remember, Joash was that king of Judah that was seven years old. His mother uh, or, or grandmother, his, his, uh, they, they tried to take the throne uh, by force. And, and that didn't go so well for them. And Joash becomes king at this very young age. And during that time, the, the, day, the, the kingdom of Judah was ruled by Joash, but it was under the advisement of, of the elders and of, of a lot of counselors. And in the book of Joel, you will find that they never once referenced the king. He says, call the assembly of the elders together to make decisions. And so some have said, well, this must be going back to those days. But that's also true of the days of Ezra and Nehemiah in 450 B.C. There is no king in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah because this is post-exile. They have been taken off into Babylonian captivity and they have returned to Jerusalem without a king. And so the, the elders are the ones making decisions in that day. But there's a third point that I think tends to be more likely the, the, the scenario, and that is at the end of Judah. The kingdom is about to fall to Babylon. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar has come in, and if you'll remember the king Jehoiachin, he's the last king that is on the throne that, that is placed there as a successor to a, a family member of David. He's the last king because what Nebuchadnezzar does is comes in and he kills Jeconiah and he takes his brother, or I should say his uncle, Zedekiah, and he sets him on the throne. So now we have a king of Judah that has been appointed by a king from another nation. And in that time, you have a lot of distress. You have people being carried off into captivity. And 11 months later, you have Nebuchadnezzar coming back and wiping out the city, destroying the temple. There's many things that we read in this, in this book that I think are much more fitting to that time period. Having said all that, exactly when this book is written really doesn't matter. Sometimes we get really, really in, embroiled in, in these arguments of trying to understand exactly when these things take place. Whether or not it's this late pre-exile or, or post-exile, whatever time it is, it might change the context of what some of the judgment is in the book, but it doesn't change the overall message that we need to understand. And so what is that message? What is the message of Joel? To find that out, we need to understand first by looking at what's happening in this book. Chapter 1 is describing, and chapter 2 is going to continue to describe, this event that the prophets like to talk about a lot. And that is the day of the Lord. What is this? What's going on? Well, at the beginning of the book, we see this day of the Lord has come upon them. For chapter 1, verse 15, he's been describing it for the last 15 verses. Alas, for the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is at hand. <clears throat> he is talking about what's going on in the city. And what's going on in the city seems to refer to some form of oppression that is going on with them. Now, whenever you see this phrase, the day of the Lord, it can always mean one of two things. It's always going to mean one of two things. One, it's going to mean God is coming, and He is coming <clears throat> with redemptive power to save His people. That's the way the Jews like to think about it. I mean, that's the way I think we would all like to think about it. We should think about it in that way. God is coming with redemptive power 
to save his people who are caught up in oppression. But the other way to think about it, and the other way that is used in the scripture, and the way that really the Jews should have been thinking about it more than they were, is God is coming with wrathful power on enemies who have turned against him. And that is a picture of Israel and of Judah that we see painted over and over again. So in this first chapter, when the book begins with what we can only describe as this plague of locusts. They have devoured the land in chapter 1. He says, "Give uh, in verse 2, Hear this, you elders and, elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? He goes on to say, think back. Do you ever remember something like this happening? And then he goes on to say, you're going to be telling this story for generations to come. You're going to be telling people about what the chewing locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. The swarming locusts have left, the crawling locusts have eaten. What the crawling locusts have left, the consuming locusts have eaten. He's saying, look, this is a terrible, terrible plague that we are, that we are, have been struck by. And so immediately he goes into a problem. There is a problem in Judah. And not once does he say, here's why. Because what the Joel, the author of Joel, what he is doing is he is assuming you've been following along with the history of Israel, the history of Judah, how they have been taken out of Egypt, how they have been made into this great nation, how they have been given a king, God, and yet that wasn't enough for them. They wanted a physical king. They wanted to be like the nations around them, so much so that they began to follow their gods and take their wives as their own. And they progressively turned further and further away from God, inviting God's judgment in upon themselves. And so this locust plague has come on them, and I can't help but notice that it looks a lot like Egypt. This is the place that they have been pulled out from, and yet now they kind of look like Egypt. You remember the eighth plague of Egypt as the Israelites were there? God sent locusts in to destroy the crops and harvest of the land. They are starting to look eerily similar to the nation that God rescued them out of, and that's not just because of the locusts. You think of who Egypt was. Egypt was a mighty and powerful nation, rich, serving multiple gods, oppressive to the people that were were under their control. That's a picture of Judah. Judah, at the end of the kingdom, is described uh, by by people like Isaiah who say, you better be careful if you owe somebody a pair of sandals because you're going to be caught up in slavery. They're going to buy you up. You can't pay back your debt to me even if it's just a pair of sandals. You work for me now until I feel like the debt's been paid off. That's the way they treated people. Human lives were not of importance to them. And so they begin to look a lot more like the nation that they've been pulled out of, Egypt, than the nation that God has made them to be. And God is saying, well, if you want to look like them, well, how about we just let you look like them? They experienced this great plague. Why don't you experience it too? And that's not unsimilar to the things that God has done in the past. Think back to Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, God says, you all come out of the city and don't look back. And Lot's wife looks back. And I'm afraid sometimes we read that and go, and then she turned into a pillar of salt because God just said, what am I going to do to this woman? How am I going to somehow teach her and her family a lesson? I got it, pillar of salt. That'll teach her. No, when you read some of the other books of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 29, later Moses is recurring, recalling that event in their mind. He says, don't forget what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were turned into a burning waste of salt. 
In Zephaniah 2.9, the prophet Zephaniah declares Moab and Ammon, Ammon are going to become just like Sodom and Gomorrah, places possessed by nettles and salt pits. What we see happening is God brought destruction and punishment on a wicked nation, and He said, if you want to be like them, if you can't pull yourself away from this evil and wickedness, you can share in their punishment. And Judah is wanting to be just like Egypt right now. They're wanting to be the powerhouse that relies on themselves, relies on what they have, what they can do, and even turns their back on God to follow other gods because somehow that's going to provide for them what they need. And he says, if you want to be like that, you can share in their punishment. And Joel sees this. And he starts connecting the dots of this earlier plague, this, this coming of locusts. And he's saying, man, things have gotten really bad, but they're not as bad as you all think. They're worse. Things have gotten bad. They ate everything. All the crops are gone. He talks about the grain and the vine and the, the apple trees and all of these crops are damaged. But what it's led to is the temple service being affected. The grain offering and the drink offering, because those things, the, 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 the vineyards and the wheat fields are destroyed, all of those offerings are dried up. And this is a call then for them to truly see how terrible circumstances are getting in Jerusalem. In fact, when you look at some of the, the, the later prophets, Prophet Malachi, most likely the very last prophet to speak before the coming of John the Baptist and then Jesus, Malachi brings a message to the people and he says, you want to know what God says? God says that He wishes you would shut the doors to the temple and stop going in there. And what he was saying is, I wish you would quit worshiping me because your worship is full of hypocrisy. You come before me and praise me like I'm the great king, the creator of all earth, and yet your lives are filled with wickedness. He's like, I just wish you would just quit. That's similar to what we see happening here, except John, God isn't sending the message through Joel. He's sending the message through the locusts. Not shut the doors. It's I'll take away all the emblems. I'll take away all the things that you use to worship me. And what this results in is a call for mourning. In verses 13 through, through uh, 14, he says, Lament and wail and come all night and lie in sackcloth and minister to uh, those of you who minister to God. And he goes on to say, Fast and call an assembly and gather the elders and cry out to the Lord. He wants everyone everyone to be gathered together into the house of the Lord and crying out and pleading to Him. And the plea is to try to get His attention. God, listen to us and see our situation. Quit turning to yourself. Quit turning to all the other things and turn to God because the day of the Lord is at hand. They need to recognize God's wrath has removed their food. He's removed our gladness. If you see in verse 18, it says even the animals are seeing this and they're groaning as well. The herds are restless. Everyone is affected and, and there is seemingly no, no hope. And the end of the chapter ends with this very pitiful cry. You just kind of, kind of have Joel crying out before God, please, we can't do this. We can't do anything about this. We need your mercy. And so you see a shift in Joel 1 from a picture of a people who had become like Egypt to a people who are becoming like the Israelites who left Egypt. You remember when, the, when Moses comes back to, to Egypt to draw the Israelites out, what he says is, God has heard your cries. You see a repentance taking place here on a level. 
You see a people who are becoming more like the people who are crying out to God, bring us out of Egypt and save us. But this isn't the only place you see that. Read through the book of Judges. The Judges cycle is just churning up again. Every time Israel does something wicked and something evil and God brings an oppression like a locust plague, like another invading army in, they, they say, okay, we have done sin. God, we've done sin. Come into our lives and save us. And God comes in and saves us and they're good for a couple years. And then we're going to start it all back over again. And that's, I think that's what God's afraid of happening here. And so how does he respond? Whenever Joel, you, you see this picture of Joel crying out, saying, all right, we need your mercy, God. You're right. We have been wicked and we've been sinful. And we need your mercy. God responds in chapter 2 saying, blow the trumpet. Send the trumpet blast in. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now, that looks back. That trumpet blast. That looks back. Many prophets use that picture. Jeremiah uses that picture. Jeremiah is blowing trumpets everywhere. When you read through Jeremiah, he's like, go over here and blow a trumpet. And go to the city and blow a trumpet. And go up on that mountain and blow a trumpet. He wants trumpets blown all over the world. But it all goes back to Numbers chapter 10. In Numbers chapter 10, God gives His people trumpets. Shofars, a horn, a ram's horn. He gives them these, these shofars made of silver and says you will blow them to do a couple of things. Sometimes you blow them to draw the people to the tabernacle, which is where God's presence is. So you're blowing them to draw the people to God. Other times when you're going into army, into a battle, or when you have a memorial feast, you blow them to, God, to draw God to you. And so whenever he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, either he is saying, draw God to you, or you draw to God. Now he's already said, I'm coming, and I'm coming with wrath, so I don't think they're saying, come quickly probably saying, you need to draw the people back to me. You need to draw the people to return to me. Because there is a future day that is coming. Another day of the Lord. And you want my attention, but I've got to first have yours. And so he goes in to start describing this future day of the Lord. You think it's been bad with this plague of locusts, but look at what's coming. Look at what I'm trying to get your attention for. And he's, he describes this day of the Lord. It is very, very similar to the things that we read about the locusts. You talk about things climbing over walls and they're everywhere. But it's also very, very similar to what exactly happens in around 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar comes back in that second time and he burns the city. And, and he not only burns the city, he burns the temple. Listen to what he says in verse 3. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. And then he says, think back to the Garden of Eden, that beautiful garden, that perfect garden that God planted. Think back to that because it's like that, and they're coming through, and they're turning it into a wasteland behind them. He's like, this is utter destruction. And you thought it was bad when the locusts came through because all the grain was dried up and your joy was dried up. But here he says, men's faces are writhing in pain. This is going to affect more than just the crops and the livestock. People are going to die in this future day of the Lord. And then you get over to verse 10. And you hear the earthquakes before them. Then the heavens tremble and the sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voices before His army, for His camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes His word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. You see this, and we, we remember talking about that in Mark 13, didn't we? 
about the coming of the day of the Lord and all those symbolisms, then you start reading that and you remember what he said to Isaiah as well. In Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1, when he said those very same things of this, these celestial bodies falling from skies and, and the sun and moon not giving their light, then he says, I'm talking about the day of the Lord, I'm talking about judgment coming, and I'm talking about it coming upon, in that instance, in Isaiah, Babylon. Now he's saying, it's not, this isn't on one of your nations. This isn't on one of your enemies. This is me coming against you. I'm coming to destroy this nation because you have become so filthy and wicked. And then he ends that, that whole little section in verse 11 with this one little question. Who can endure it? I'm coming. And I'm coming with great power and great might. And I'm bringing a nation against you. And who is going to be able to stand through this? And the answer to that question is no one. That is the answer that is, not the answer that is given, that is the implied answer. When you read through what's happening, the answer that we should all come up with if we're Jews in that day is there's no hope. God is coming against us and we don't stand a chance. But he doesn't end at verse 11. And sometimes we get the picture that that's, that's all God is. It's right there. That's God of the Old Testament. Joel chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 11. Just this angry, hateful, spiteful, vengeful, jealous God. But then he shifts and answers a question that no one should be able to answer. No one should be able to say, I can be saved from this. I can endure this. But he says, let me tell you who will endure this in verse 12. He gives an answer to that previous question and says, it's those who will rend their hearts. Now that is very important speech that he's given there. Because he begins by saying those who will rend their hearts and not your garments. And then he quotes Exodus 34 and verse 6. Right there at the, at the end of verse 13. For return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and relents from doing harm. Now, that's Exodus 34 verse 6 goes back to Mount Sinai. You remember that Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments and he comes down and, and there's been this awesome display of power. Fire and smoke have, have fallen on the mountain and the people are scared to even go near it because they might die because this is a great and awesome God. So let's build a golden calf. And God, while he's giving Moses the commandments, he's like, go down and see what these people are doing. See what people you're leading out of Egypt. And he's ready to just wipe them out. And Moses has to say, no, no, don't wipe them out. And he goes down and he goes back up and he's talking to God. And during that time when God should be saying, these people deserve to just be completely destroyed. These people should have no hope. These people should not be a people. These people should not receive mercy. During that time, you know what he says? He says, you know what? I'm a God that is gracious. I'm a God that is merciful. And I'm a God that is slow to anger. I am a God that is not, uh, not, not quick to, to bring judgment and bring you know, wrath down upon people. But also, he also says that I'm a God that will visit justice upon the guilty. That's very important for us to see in our picture of who God is. He's abounding in goodness and truth. He forgives sin, but He is just. And He will always be just. And so here, 
after all the terrible things that he's called and says, look, it's going to get even worse unless you turn back to me because I am a just God and I will punish wickedness, but I will also forgive. And so he brought up that rending of the hearts and that's very important because it goes back to something that Jacob, I believe Jacob is the one that started this, whenever he was upset, when he was moved with great sorrow or anger, he tore his clothes to show everyone around him, this, I'm not happy with this, I'm not okay with this. And God says, I want more than just an outward appearance of repentance. You all have gotten really good at putting on sackcloth and ashes and sitting around and woe is me. And everyone look at the nation of Judah. They are so sad for what they've done. He says, I want you to go a step farther. Because in verses 15 through 17, listen to what he says right after telling them we're in their hearts. He says, I do want you to fast and I want you to hold assembly and I want you to gather the people. I want you to do the things that we talked about back over in verses 13 through 14. None of those outward actions have changed, but I want you to add to them a torn, rent heart. I want you to be broken hearted, not just putting on a show for everyone else around you. I want you to be filled with godly sorrow. And we hate that. We hate sorrow. We don't, nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, today is the day I get to be sad. I've been looking forward to this all week long. We want to try to guard ourselves from that. And God says, no, you need to see the importance of sorrow. Sorrow, especially in a circumstance like this where you have removed yourself so far from God, sorrow is the key to coming back. So he says, you go ahead and you weep and you moan and you wail and you gather together and you fast and you cry out. But you do it with the tattered remains of your heart. And he says, here's why. That will lead me to repent. That will lead God to repent. Now, we don't, like, we, we don't think about that a whole lot. Why would God ever have to repent? But God is saying, I'm bringing judgment. I'm bringing destruction on you. But I will change my way. I will turn away from that. And he says, I will do it in three ways. I will repent in three ways if you will turn to me with broken hearts. Number one, I will turn away the enemies. Likely this is referring to those locusts that were in the land destroying everything. He says, I will blow them away to their destruction. They will be taken away from you. And not, not only will I turn them away, I will restore your land. And he says, not, things are just going to be like, well, the locusts, excuse me, the locusts are gone, but you know, we can rebuild this. We can make this someday a, a, a home again. He says, no, I'm going to take the locusts away and I'm going to give you things. I'm going to make your life better. I'm going to fill it with abundance and wealth. And then lastly, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to be in your midst and you're going to know that I'm in your, midst, in your midst. I'm going to restore the knowledge of your presence. And maybe, I believe this, this is probably the best reason to believe that this might have been written in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because if you'll remember in those days, Zerubbabel has built the temple. This is after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. They've come back that 70 years later like God promised and they've rebuilt the temple and they look back and they say, okay, when, when we were in the wilderness, God's presence was with us with smoke and fire leading us through the wilderness and then we made the tabernacle. And what happened? God's presence filled the tabernacle so mightily that it drove Moses out of it. And he could not go back in with, with wind and smoke and fire. And the same thing happened in Solomon's temple. And so we're building Zerubbabel's temple in the days of, of Zerubbabel and Ezra. And we're building that temple. And we're laying the last pieces. And we're done. 
and nothing happens. God's presence never enters that temple. Not like it did. Now we read that God is with them, but His presence never enters. And so here, maybe here, in, in, at the end of chapter 2, in verse 27, when he says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. Maybe there we see the best picture for this to be written in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But he wants to shift his view now. After saying all these things. After saying what true repentance leads you to. True repentance leads you to having your enemies defeated. True repentance leads you to having restoration of blessings in your life. True repentance leads you to knowing that you have the presence of God amongst you. And then he says, now let's talk about something that's going to happen in the future. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And so he shifts his view. And he says, let me tell you about this future event. In verse 28, he says, this future event is going to happen with God pouring out His Spirit on everybody. Think about what he says there. They're going to pour His Spirit out on men and on women, young and old, free, slave. Does that start to sound familiar? No. Did not Paul talk about the same things in Galatians? Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse, um, Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 through 28. When he talks about that the kingdom of Christ is open to male and female, free and slave, Colossians chapter 3, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, Jew, it doesn't matter, it's open to all. He's saying, I'm going to pour my spirit out on everybody. And Paul is saying later, everybody is welcomed in to the kingdom of Christ. We should start to see a connection there. But probably where we most often go to in these passages is where they're repeated verbatim by Peter. In Acts chapter 2, Peter begins that first gospel sermon of the kingdom of Christ has come and he repeats this passage. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 31 verbatim. And what he's saying is you guys are looking for that. He is telling you that if you will turn your hearts back to Him, if you will repent, He will relent from destroying you and then there will come a day when His Spirit is going to be poured out mightily in you in that coming day of the Lord. Remember, could mean wrath, could mean salvation. He says it's coming. And in their mind, they're still looking for the salvation of the day of the Lord to come and set them up as a mighty nation. And they're looking for all this. And Peter says, it's here. It's just arrived. Acts chapter 2, he said, it's finally here. The kingdom has come. The day of the Lord is at hand. Be prepared for it. And we look at that. And we always focused on the pouring out of the Spirit. I said, yeah, it happened. God's Spirit was poured out and He was in their midst. You remember the twelve apostles that were there speaking and the rushing wind comes through the room and, and, and flaming tongues descend and rest upon all of them and are showing them that not only is God's presence here, but the temple has changed. 
It is not the physical location setting up on the Temple Mount. It is in the hearts of mankind. God is residing within us. And we focus on that, but we oftentimes forget what's still on the horizon. In Joel chapter 2, what's still on the horizon? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord hasn't gone away. But this time, I want you to think about, you remember last time in chapter 2, he said the day of the Lord is coming and who can endure it? This time he says the day of the Lord of coming and this is who will endure it. This is not a passage of hopelessness anymore. This is a passage moving forward from this point on of great, great hope and great mercy. He goes on to say these are those who are going to be saved. And not only is God going to gather His people, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, in those days and at that time, I will bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Again, this is why I think this is at the end of the Judean kingdom. In Ezra and Nehemiah's day, the captives were already brought back. But at the end of the Judean kingdom, they're just taken away. And he says, I'm going to bring them back. And I'm going to restore them. I will also gather all nations... Bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them. <clears throat> and so not only is He going to gather His people together, He is going to gather their enemies together and He's going to judge them and they are going to be defeated. And as you read through there, He says, I'm going to make Jerusalem holy. And there is this final picture of, of a feast land once again. And that's the picture of Canaan when they went in. He said, go into Canaan and tell me what you see. And they came back and they said, we saw, we saw a land flowing with milk and honey. There were grapes so big that it took two men to carry the clusters. It is a land full of luxury and wealth and relaxation and peace and joy. And we have nothing to worry about. It's a place where we can celebrate a life living with our King. And that's the picture that we see of heaven over and over again. It's this feast land. In fact, Jesus tell, uses the parable over and over again. Are you prepared for the feast? Are you prepared for the marriage ceremony? And here we see the same thing. Mountains dripping with new wine. Hills flowing with milk. In verses 18, uh, in verse 18. But you also see a fountain issuing out from the center of this land. This new holy Jerusalem that He is rebuilding. And the fountain will flow from the house of the Lord. It's a fountain flowing from God. And it's very similar to the picture that Ezekiel paints at the end of his book. When he says that there was a new temple. <clears throat> and he is taken and said, I want you to measure the temple. And he notices a water streaming out of it. And he's brought around to the outside and he's taken some ways away and says, how deep's the water? He walks out in it and says, what's about ankle deep? And he's taken a little bit further away from the temple. And he says, now how deep's the water here? This one, now it's about up to my knees. And he's taken out even further. And the further and further he goes, the deeper the water gets until he couldn't, he couldn't even stand in it anymore. And the picture that we're seeing is that God is going to create. He is telling them, if you will return to me, if you will have honest hearts, rent and torn, I will fill you with my spirit. And I will create in you my new kingdom. A new kingdom that is filled with, with my joy and with my blessings, with my protection over your enemies. And flowing out of it is a stream that no matter how far away from me you are, it can reach you. And it's flowing to draw people 
and let them receive grace from the, from the temple of God. He's saying there's nowhere you can go where you can get away from my grace and my mercy. There's nowhere you can go in your life. You can choose not to ever come back. But there's nowhere you can go where you cannot be reached by my love. And this final picture of Joel reminds us then, God's going to be victorious. God is going to defeat His enemies. God is going to rule in His perfect kingdom. And we can be there with Him, but only, as we saw over and over again, in 3.17, chapter 3, verse 17 tells us, only if we know that He is the Lord, that He is God. Who is God in our lives? Joel is trying to remind the people of that day, and he needs to remind us, Yahweh is God. The big picture in just a few words is Joel is a prophet that reminds people why they experience trial and troubles. It is because of sin and unfaithfulness. And he warns of a coming judgment and also says God wants to have mercy on you. He longs for you to repent. Do more than just trying to show the people around you that you're sorry. Put on the true attire of repentance, which is a torn and sorrowful heart so that you can have hope. Hope that God will fight for you. Hope that God will restore you. Hope that God will fill you with His Spirit. And then and only then can you stand as an inhabitant of His holy kingdom. That's the book of Joel. That's a book that we still need today. That's a message that we still need to hear. And so what about you? What about you this morning? Would you like to stand as well as an inhabitant of the kingdom of God? But I want you to remember... I want you to remember the Jews in the days of Jesus. These are the Jews that heard this message, that heard Joel speak to their their ancestors, and that message was carried down to them. And they're looking for the Messiah that's going to come and do these very things and set up this physical kingdom and restore them once more so they could rule their land with God in their midst. These same people lived to see the Messiah come, and they killed Him, and they turned away from Him. But what I want you to think about is back in Acts chapter 2, what's happening? What's happening when they hear this? They're being told, the Messiah you killed, the man you killed, Jesus of Nazareth, He is the Christ. He was the Messiah. And the trumpet is being blown. You are being called by His Gospel to turn back to Him and have hearts rent and come to the Lord for forgiveness of your sins and to be filled with His Spirit. Now, with that picture in mind, I want you to read Acts 2.38 again. Acts 2.36-38. Because what you see here is more than just, oh, the doctrine of the church of Christ to be baptized. No, what you see is a people that are going, I'm going to do what Joel said to do. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we possibly do about this? And Jesus said, every one of you repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remissions of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was saying, guys, do what Joel told you to do. If you want to stand before God, faithful, if you want to stand before God and be an inhabitant of His kingdom eternally in heaven in the feast land where we will enjoy His presence for all of eternity. And Joel says, just turn back to Him. 
Turn to Him. Repent. Have your heart torn so it can be mended and whole and you can be filled with His Spirit. And that's our desire this morning. And that's always ever been our desire to help one another be able to do those exact things. If we can help you to turn back or to come to the Lord for the first time today, won't you let it be known? Come forward as we stand and as we sing.